Hey folks, welcome to the House of Kraus. We're celebrating. We're celebrating all week. You know why? Because it's Canada Day up Canada Way. At the House of Kraus, we put together a series of interviews and conversations that we've had with some really interesting Canadians talking about Canada, talking about all sorts of different aspects of what it means to be Canadian, what it means to make movies here, what it means to to just be part of the grand mosaic that is this country. Richard Cumley stops by to talk about Captain Canuck. Jay Baruchel is here because he literally is Captain Canuck. He has a maple leaf tattooed over his heart. Patrick McKenna is here uh, to talk about being on a classic Canadian television show and how uh, he often was mistaken for me, or you know what, I think it's probably the other way around. Brent Butt is here to talk about uh, his connection with some Canadian legends, even though he's one himself. There's loads of good stuff coming your way, so stay with us. Let's start, let's kick things off with Captain Canuck. I don't mean Jay Baruchel, I mean the superhero created by Richard Cumley. This is the creator of the great Canadian superhero, Richard Cumley. Let's go right back to the very beginning. It's the early 70s. There is no Canadian superhero. There had been the odd one here and there in comic book form, but you wanted to bring something back. Well, I don't think there had been really anything... um, it all really started in 1971 when I met Ron Leishman at church. Mm-hmm. And uh, we would get together and uh, he would say we were both artists, cartoonists. Um, um, and he said, you know, there should be a Canadian superhero. And we, we talked about it and uh, um, we, we talked about it often. Mm-hmm. And uh, about 1973, we got really serious about it. And that's when we decided on the name Captain Canuck. Uh, there, there had actually been a few Captain Canadas. I think there had been about four, and one of them had moose horns, and <laughs> and so it, that had s- spoiled it. <clears throat> and, and, and drank maple syrup yeah. as fuel. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and uh, it wasn't until '74 that I really started to do some work on the whole project, and the first issue came out in 1975. And, you know, that's at the time because it was an independent comic book that you were releasing, right? So what was it? I mean, was it a a, a sense of a stirring sense of national pride or was it uh, you saw a hole in the marketplace or what was it that that brought you to that? Both and more, actually. Uh, But the, yeah, there was there was a void to be filled. Mm -hmm. And and I think our timing was good. We we didn't know our timing was going to be good. And uh, um, by that time, Ron was serving a mission in France. And so we got to see it from a very a far distance, so to right. speak. You know what I mean? And, uh, but when, um, when I started, I mean, I, I really didn't know even that much about comic books. Mm-hmm. I, I had worked as a graphic designer. I'd worked as a crest designer. I'd done fashion styling or, or clothing design, I should say. And this was a new world to me. I had to learn a lot. And, uh, in, in the beginning, I, you know, p- people ask why, you know, why didn't you talk to Marvel or, or DC mm-hmm. and n- never crossed my mind, to be honest with you. Right. I, I had a meeting with an, ex- an executive from Harlequin magazine, uh, a Harlequin romance, excuse me, <clears throat> and they were interested. Somebody came from, from Toronto to Winnipeg where I was based and uh, they took me to lunch, and they were definitely interested. And I, I might have gone with them, and I might, I might have come to Toronto much, much sooner in my life. Right. 
Um, but um, I had a, an accountant friend who talked me into uh, setting up my own publishing operation because he told me I could get lots of government money <laughs> to, to do that. That's what they all say. Yeah. yeah. I, got, I, I didn't get a dime in the end and right. after lots of trying, you know. <clears throat> so that was the beginning. <laughs> You've reinvented them, it seems like, every 20 years at least, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> well, I, you know, started in 75, and um, in, well, and that first, what we call the original series, ended about 81. Right. And that wasn't even a smooth run, totally. Uh, I started it again in 93. And what, what's kind of interesting about ni- 1993 is, back in 75, I was writing uh, about Captain Knuck in the future, in the relatively near future, and I set the date as 1993. Right. And, and, and I, you know, and 1993 seemed hard to imagine back then. And, well, anyways, it was an in, interesting coincidence that I started Captain Canuck Reborn mm-hmm. in 1993. And I started a newspaper strip uh, in 95, and that's the year that the postage stamp came out. Right. What has uh, kept you coming back to the character? Well, a, a lot of it has just been fans. I mean, I've done other things. I've done children's books and advertising and greeting cards and, and even video production and all kinds of other stuff. And uh, But no, I mean, I, it's never left my system, I guess, really. Uh, and I've always wanted it. Uh, the potential has always been there. There's always been a, a, a very loving fan base. But it's very difficult uh, to, to publish and to, and to produce uh this kind of a project in Canada, and right. it has a lot to do with the, the size of the country and the size of the population and where we're located, right beside the big the big guy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Richard Cumley talking about Captain Canuck. Let's move, let's segue smoothly into Jay Baruchel. Now, I called him Captain Canuck in a article that I wrote once about him, and then we talked about that, and we talked about why he likes making films in Canada, and if he'll continue to make films in Canada. This was for a movie called Good Neighbors. Uh, He's made loads of stuff here since then, but uh, it's really interesting what he has to say about it. It just made me so happy to see you in this film because, I mean, we've talked about this a lot of times, but, you know, I, uh, in an article last year, I called you Captain Canuck because... <laughs> yeah, you, I know you did, right? Because you, you keep coming Thanks, back and man. working here. And, Thanks. you know, and I was in London a little while ago in England, and uh, Jerry Bruckheimer was making a presentation, <laughs> and I told you about this. He came out, and he showed The Sorcerer's Apprentice, a clip from The Sorcerer's Apprentice, and it's big, and yeah. Nicholas Cage is there, and there's a car through a thing, <laughs> and, you know, it's obviously a very expensive movie. Yeah. And you're in it, and he comes out, that kid's going to be a big star. He's like, I love him, Jay Baruch. And then the next thing I see you in is this little movie from Montreal, yeah. and you're coming back, and you still, I mean, right. this will never change, right? Oh, oh, God, no, no, no. Ideally, it'll increase. Yeah. You know, I hope, you know, hopefully I'm, I'm, listen, I, I, I'm very grateful for the career I've had, uh, you know, and, and the, the career I've had in the States has afforded my mother and my sister and I just lives we never would have otherwise had. Right. Um, that being said, I, I, I'm hopefully in the kind of home stretch. I, 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 you know, I've, I've been able to make a, a bunch of good things in the States, yeah. but for the most part, by and large, the things that I'm, I'm really most proud of have all been here. You know, my, my, if I was to say what my favorite movies that I've ever been in, would be the Trotsky and a flick called Real Time. That yeah, I, did, I love you Real know? Time. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. You know, and 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 um, and those are two movies that like, 
together combined don't even meet the transpo budget. Of yeah, or the shrimp budget. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. And, and and so like I I, I don't know I I, I uh, um and I'm I'm finally you know and, and and acting as much as I love it and respect it. It's never been my raison d'être. All I've right. wanted to you know we've had conversations. Yeah. All I want to do is write and direct. And yeah. finally, something I wrote is going to picture next month. You know this wow. thing I wrote called the Goon, uh, this hockey flick, and we're shooting it in Winnipeg with. Um, Sean William Scott and Mark Andre Grandin, Michael Dowse is directing it. Wow, and, right on. Oh, oh I've heard about this. I yeah, heard Michael Dowse. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, going to yeah, be yeah. A, and 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 a whole bunch of other awesome cast members that aren't completely official, so I shouldn't yeah, mention. Yeah. But um, yeah. we we're putting together this amazing who's who of uh, of Canadian uh, um, and, and and Quebecois and American actors together. There's never been a movie like this, right. and I think that we're given um, we're given Canadian. Uh, film fans and hockey fans, a movie they've been waiting for their whole lives. That was Captain Canuck, Jay Baruchel, talking about why he likes to work in Canada. I've got another conversation with Jay Baruchel I want to share with you because I find him so interesting. He's, he's maybe Canada's great patriot. He is a guy who has warmly and openly worn his Canadianness on his sleeve, or more rightly, over his heart with the tattoo of the maple leaf, for years, is not shy about talking about it, is unabashedly proud of his Canadian roots. And one thing that goes hand in hand with being Canadian is loving hockey. And he wrote and starred in and was part of a movie called Goon. And I wanted to share this conversation with you because at one point, Jay says, hockey is as infinite as literature, as music, as food, which may be, I mean, he didn't mention poutine and he didn't mention a mousse or maple syrup, but that sentence may be the most Canadian thing ever uttered anywhere. Here's Jay Baruchel on Goon. You know, we talked about this a year ago, probably a year ago. And uh, so now it's happening. And you told me a year ago, you hadn't started shooting yet. You told me a year ago, this is going to be the best hockey movie since Slapshot. Yeah. With now me. that it's done. Yeah, without a doubt, unquestionably. <laughs> and, and, and I go so far as to say that we, um, we have the best hockey in any hockey movie. Yeah. It's the best hockey committed to film in any movie. Um, and, and it has teeth. And it really, it hits you in the head like a two-by-four. It's, it's loud. It's uh, very, very coarse. Um, it's violent as fuck. And, and, but, but I think that the most important thing, none of, none of what I just mentioned would, be, uh, would, be, would work or be relevant in any way um, if you didn't give a shit about what was happening. And, and I think that more, the most important thing about this movie is... Um, how much I hate using this word because it's overused, but how much just how much heart it has. Well, you know, sports movies are all about heart, yeah. right? Because I don't think that anyone really expects the final game in a sports movie. Yeah. I mean, you're going to lose by a point, you're going to win by a yeah, point. Yeah, That's yeah, yeah. you know, you know, and it's exciting. Get your blood pumping yeah, a little yeah. bit. But I don't think anyone really cares about that as much as they do about the characters. It's not the game at that point. It's it's who's playing the game. No, and that's kind of and 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 that's exactly right. And and sort of this thing is meant to be. Um, look, hockey, hockey is is as infinite as as literature, as music, as food, 
Um, so there's no way to make a movie about all of it. Yeah. So what we're doing is focusing on one facet of it, and, and that speaks to what you were just saying. It's about the dude. And we, we decided, you know, it all came from a very pure place that we believed we, that it's supposed to be sort of a, an anthem for the, an anthem to the, the most maligned, least understood position in professional sports, that of the hockey enforcer. Yeah. No, no, no single position in any game is more uh, polarizing, is more rife with debate, uh, uh, all these things, and 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 that's who I was raised to to love. I, I grew up in a house where all my dad's favorite players were the Chris Nylons and the John Cordicks, the tough guys, and and so I grew up not just an appreciation but an inherent respect for what they did. And and so I I decided like I figured these boys deserve their moment in the sun because um, all you ever see in reference to them on television is a bunch of talking heads who uh, are deciding their fates for them, passing judgment on what they do, and I thought they deserve a movie, and 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 that's why it's as violent as it is because it is not a clean job they do, and just like a soldier who leaves and runs the risk of not coming home this guy runs the risk of having some very terrible injuries inflicted upon him every time he skates these are boys that skate if they're lucky four minutes the entire game and so that's why sean in our movie he he undergoes some very 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 terrible physical repercussions for this job and and so we're not passing any kind of moral judgment on it aside from we could take a lesson from these boys uh, about their sort of humble blue-collar work ethic of regardless of what the score is, regardless of what, how much your teammates like you or respect you, whatever your coach thinks of you, none of that is relevant. All is relevant is giving 100% whenever you're asked. And uh, there's something inherently beautiful in that to me. Yeah, yeah, and being ready to do it. At all times, at all like times. because you don't know whether you're going to get called out in the first four minutes of the game, or you might sit there for two yeah, hours and get called out in the last at the thirty very, seconds. At yeah. the very end, to shift momentum, to send a message, to to, yeah. to watch your boys' back, it is a thankless, painful job, uh, um, and one that I have taken so much inspiration from. And uh, uh, and these are these are the heroes I grew up yeah. with. Um, so we're not making light of their job. It's it's. There's a lot of funny moments in our movie. It, it, you know, it's inherently accessible because hockey, being such a blue-collar sport, is inherently funny. The dynamic between the boys is just funny. And it's called goon. You yeah, know, like it's, it, it is a hundred percent. And yeah. it's a very, very sort of self-deprecating. But we're trying to repurpose and take ownership of that name. And and why why should that be derogatory? Yeah. You know, why why you know, I I I know as a Habs fan we could use a goon, so <laughs> <laughs> Well, um I was in Montreal for just for laughs recently. Yeah. And um I went I had to go see a movie while I was there. I went to the AMC and I saw Cowboys and Aliens, whatever. On the way out I saw these seats, these like stadium seats. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, what are those doing here? What an odd place for those. It's from the forum. I didn't You're know I was for- in the old forum. You're in the forum, yeah, yeah which is this weird it's a kind of a depressing thing that, like, I, 
Part of me wishes that thinks that if they're going to tear down the forum and turn it into a movie theater, it should just be a movie right. theater. Right. That be, you know. That being said, it is wonderful that they kept actual seats from the forum. And I was kind of excited by. It, I got to tell you, like I thought it was sitting, pretty cool. No, and you're yeah. sitting in seats that were from the actual forum. No, and I sit in them every time I go to the movies yeah. there at AMC. And out front, we have a sort of a bun- little sort of walk of fame, uh, recognizing a bunch of Habs out front of the movie theater. Um, no, but it's weird. Yeah, you'll go to see a movie, and then I'm say, I'm actually literally in the forum right yeah. now. Yeah, it's pretty special. Yeah, it was cool. <laughs> um, Tell me then, uh, in the in the news lately, there's been lots of talk about Wade Bellow and, yeah. and all, um, who were enforcers, and there's 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 a lot of talk, which I, I'm not sure that I really understand, yeah. but there's a lot of talk about sort of the emotional toll that it takes yeah. on people after they've left the game. 100%. And do you have thoughts on that? Can you talk about I, that? I do indeed. I, you know, I... It's been it's been a, a dreadful summer, uh, uh, incredibly somber for for this game. Uh, um, you know Rick Rippin and uh, Derek Bugard and, and Wade Belak and and so, but I what I what what I think is happening is sort of two issues are becoming melded into one because I think this is coming on the end of the most violent two seasons in NHL history, and I think that. Uh, blindside open ice headshots and dirty headshots and elbows to the head this is taking a toll this is something that needs to be rectified I don't think that is the same issue as fighting within the game that being said obviously something's not working right but these are similar issues that have plagued boxers that have plagued football players um, and I think that there's no system in place there's uh, you know when a, when a when a prisoner gets out of prison they do all sort they 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 bust their ass to make sure they can integrate themselves back into society there's nothing like that for soldiers and there sure as hell isn't nothing like that for for hockey players and and so and the, and the other thing i've noticed is that this great debate about whether or not hockey should be banned and these repercussions these are never the boys themselves having these questions. These are sort of this is this is talking heads passing judgment on what these boys do. Uh, obviously something's not working as well as it should. And obviously, but I I, I suspect that it's more uh, a statement on on the lifestyle of a hockey player than it is specifically that position. But again, I don't do it, and I don't fight for a living, so I I can't really, I'm not the best to talk about it. Yeah, I just, what I think, oh, sorry, three minutes? Oh, thanks, Julius. I, I think that uh, you know, like in boxing, there's no you don't hit the load of dealt. You don't right. like there's rules, right? Mm-hmm. You're still beating the hell out of mm-hmm. one another, but there's rules to how it works, yeah. and and uh, everyone seems to understand the rules and the rules. Go now, hockey. You're told like you know, don't hit someone with a stick in the face when they're not wearing a helmet. Like yeah. you're told that, but there's something about the emotion that takes over, or something, or the speed of it, or something, and, or indeed. there's more people, or there, there's more people involved it's in the boxing ring. It's just two guys, and you're just looking at one another like that. So I don't know what it is. Well, I think also it's it's uh, um, the other thing is nobody drops the gloves in the NHL that doesn't actually want to. Right? Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. it's it's not the schoolyard, it's not the street, so you're not going to get your ass kicked if your hands are up. Yeah. And so I I I, I, mean, I I I it's one of these things where I, I think also the more. The bigger the padding and equipment becomes, the the more people are chopping each other's heads off and taking less precautions when they go into the corners. They think you're protected, exactly, right? and and um, and everyone wants to make the highlight reel of drilling some guy in the open ice or something. Uh, um, I think that. Listen, I, I I think that you know. 
Muhammad Ali would probably say that there's obviously some very clear physical repercussions yeah. for what you if you do yeah. this. That being said, that doesn't mean don't do it, in my opinion. I, and that's why sort of our movie is, is it's very truthful, because it says there's a beauty in what he does, but he will really hurt himself doing it. Yeah. Does that mean he shouldn't do it? Is that up for us to decide? But it's more just, uh, 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 yeah, an anthem for these poor bastards that do this job that like is so underappreciated and so, and so relevant and intrinsic to the North American game. <laughs> Continuing on on our Canada Day, I guess it's a Canada Week special, uh, let's talk with Patrick McKenna. As part of the Red Green Show, uh, he played a character named Harold. Harold had slick back hair, he wore glasses, often wore shirts buttoned up, and I think if you've ever seen me in person, you'll note that I have slick back hair and glasses and often wear shirts done up all the way to the top. So there were inevitable comparisons made for the 15 years that the Red Green Show was on the air. We talked about that. For very uh, quirky and specific reasons, I wasn't unhappy when the Red Green Show wasn't on all the time. And I'll tell you why. I guess. Yeah, because everywhere I went, people thought that I was you because I wear glasses and have slicked back hair. Yeah. And I would explain to them, no, it's not me. Or they'd say, hey, I love your show. And I'd be like, why, thank you. Because Absolutely. I had a show on television at the same time. I gave movie reviews all the time when people <laughs> stopped me. I did. <laughs> Absolutely. I get it. Yeah. And it was very funny. So, uh, but uh, that 15 years. Yeah. And you don't get a run like that on Canadian television. No. And the weirdest part is in getting Canadian television, you don't know you're going to get 15 years. So you're right. doing every year like it's the last year. Right. And then you wait and you hear, oh, we got picked up again. <laughs> and oh, you know, and the show like the Red Green Show, you thought maybe we'll go three weeks. Yeah. You know, and then suddenly every year it kept coming back. The beautiful thing was it was all fan-based. Right. The, the networks really weren't behind the show a lot. So when the fans started to write in, they got to see the power of the people. And that's why things like PBS took over and mm-hmm. really made it big down in the States, niche marketing. This is before cable kind of came in and yeah. took over and you know you could do that sort of thing. It was really great to watch the fans go, no, we like this show. A lot of people don't get it, but we like it. Is that show uh, done forever now or could there be a... Uh Christmas special, another movie, something? I, you know, I wish there would be because I had the most fun of my life doing that. Steve's touring around now doing a one-man show. Is he? As uh, Red, uh, Red yeah, Green, yeah. As Red Green. So he said he would never do that, so we thought it was all over. Right. But, you know, I'm a little bit old for it now, too, so I think I'd be the Red Green character, and he'd be like a ghost from Christmas past or something, you know? <laughs> but all, all of us just had such a great time. We didn't know the, the lineup would be there in a second. I think as a Canadian actor, maybe he's... Unlike our friends to the South in America who, you know, you can focus, you can be a comedian and make a living down there. You can be a dramatic actor. Here you kind of have to do everything yeah, to make you, a living, right? You better be, yeah, because I also do writing and, I, you know, I, mm. I work with Second City Directing. I do speeches about right. ADD to schools, you, you commercials, cartoons. Yeah. You, unfortunately, I've been lucky enough to kind of be successful at all of them as you go. And then you can kind of stay there. So when movies slows down, suddenly you're doing cartoons for all. Yeah. You're never really leaving the industry. You're expanding the circle. Right. And that's the way. I always, when I go to schools and talk to people who are, there's so many schools graduating young artists now, and they think, well, I'm going to be a dancer. I'm going to be the X. I'm yeah. going to be Y. It's like, that's terrific, but there's a whole alphabet, yeah. you know? So really f- load up your your tool belt because you're going to, re- it's going to be required at some point. That was Patrick McKenna talking about the Red Green Show and what it's like to be an actor in Canada as we continue the House of Krauss Canada Week gala celebration. Wanted to talk with Deepa Mehta. Deepa is, of course, a filmmaker, 
Hollywood Bollywood, Water, she's had loads of hits. Her most recent film is called Biba Boys and it's a look at Sikh gangsters in Vancouver. Uh, we talked about many things in a, a long-ranging conversation. A lot of these clips that you're hearing are just snippets from much longer interviews that I've done over the last little while. And Deepa's interview was about Biba Boys, but it's also about assimilating and coming to Canada. Here's Deepa Mehta. Why do you think it is that uh, a search for identity, the, the, the idea of identity, has been so important to you and, and in your work? I think the search for identity for me personally began when I migrated to Canada. Mm -hmm. And like, who am I? What am I? Will I be accepted? Will I not? Uh, how do I belong here? Right. Is it uh, about, you know, racism, multiculturalism? And there were so many things being thrown about. And I think that it takes generations to be assimilated. And uh, that, and I, the way the world is right now, we're all being trying to assimilate. Mm -hmm. It's not just people coming to Canada. It's it's people who are running, you know, through the channel to go right. to Britain. Right. It's it's not particular anymore. It's it's Somalians. It's uh, everything is shifting. We're all trying to go somewhere else to be and feel comfortable. We're trying to make homes that that we. We, you know, we've left left our homes and trying to make new homes. Mm -hmm. So, uh, that search is a very important search, I think. And how do you preserve your identity? What do you go through to keep it or to to assimilate is something that I think everybody should care about. Or what is the gradient in terms of Absolutely. assimilation to keeping your past association? Yes, yeah. you know, and I think that you know when Trudeau started talking about multiculturalism, that was that's what makes us different than the United States. We are not a melting pot. Mm -hmm. We say, keep your heritage. I don't know if it's good or bad, because, you know, I think diversity or ghettos can be formed that way. But at least, how do we keep our identity? But at, and, and what, at what cost? But your films, to me, uh, don't feel like uh, they, they all have, I guess, a point of view, because you're a filmmaker and you, you, you mm -hmm. have obviously a point of view and you've made a lot of movies now but I don't feel uh, like I'm even a film like Bollywood Hollywood I didn't really feel like I was watching a quote-unquote Indian film at that mm -hmm. point I just thought mm -hmm. that I was watching a joyfully told story mm -hmm. in this movie I thought that I was watching in Bebo Boys I thought that I was watching uh, a nicely told gangster story mm -hmm. it happens to have elements of, of uh, multiculturalism woven in there mm -hmm. but the stories are I think feel in some ways kind of universal. Uh, yes, I mean, I mean, I, you know, I, I keep on saying this because it's something that stays in my mind is that what Bonuel said is that the minute you're very particular is the very minute you become universal. Yep. And so Biba Boys is very particular that it's set in a certain community, but it's a very universal story. I mean, it's a gangster film mm -hmm. and uh, and it's it's got it's that genre, except it's a it's different because it's culturally moored if, or anchored, and also it's got humor, mm -hmm. which is uh, something that is unique, I think. What do you see in terms of the Biba boys? Uh, are, are they an insight into the world of, of immigrants who have come to Canada, or are they something that is set aside and a very unique story? I think that uh, it's a bit of both. And... Uh, it is a very unique story because it, and you know, because it's not based on on 
true events, mm-hmm. but it's inspired by them. Right. So it's based on true true events. It's inspired by true events, and it's inspired by true characters, and uh, and by you know by a whole anomaly of things that happened. But uh, it's so it's very particular in that way. That yes, in that group at that point and at this point, this is what happens. Brent Butt stopped by to talk about lots of things. Cornered Gas had gone off the air at this point, the the very popular sitcom. Uh, But we talked about a time before all that, before he was known for being on television and coming into our homes every week. He used to work with the kids in the hall. He worked with them as an opening act when they did live shows. I'm gonna let him tell the story, but it's interesting here to see how the kids in the hall gave him the germ of an idea for a show that went on to be Corner Gas. And it's not that the style of comedy is particularly similar or that one was necessarily better or funnier than the other. It's the overarching idea that Canadians would actually pay attention to something Canadian on their television screens if you gave them the opportunity. Here's Brent Butt. You're based in Vancouver. You, you did stand up in Toronto for for a number of years. You went back to the uh, West Coast and you ended up opening shows for uh, the kids in the hall. Tell me a little bit about uh, those days. That uh, because To me, those shows sounded so exciting because they were edgy and kind of weird and kind of unlike... It was, it was a time I really feel, and I wasn't there to see those shows, but it was a time I really felt that comedy in this country changed. Yeah. And you were at the ground zero of it. Well, there was, there was kind of two things. When I think of the kids of the hall, there was kind of two things. Like, when they did that live tour, um, I, I had done studio warm-up for them here in Toronto. So right. when, when they were taping their, their TV shows, they would always have a comic, right. and they would throw their buddies a bone and say, you know, come down. It was a great gig, 250 bucks, well, and uh, <laughs> the audience loved you because one of the kids would, you know, the, the audience was such rabid kids in the hall fans. One of the kids, Bruce or Dave or Kevin or somebody, would come out and introduce you as a friend of theirs. So now you can't lose. The crowd wants you to like them. So it was a sweet gig. But when I moved to Vancouver, I moved to Vancouver just shortly before they decided to do their live shows. And so they called me up and said um, they were starting a tour in Vancouver and Victoria and wanted me to open for them on, on tour. And seeing them live in front of an audience and seeing the place go crazy, it was like the Beatles. Yeah. Like when, when Buddy comes strutting out in his feather boa, <laughs> the, the place is going crazy. And it really dawned on me there sitting in the back of the room watching this that everybody in this room is excited about the kids in the hall based on having seen them on Canadian television because they were on HBO in the States and we didn't get HBO in Canada at the time. They were only visible to Canadian viewers on a Canadian station and the crowd was going crazy and that kind of told me the opposite of what I had been told that you can't have a homegrown hit here and I always felt that you could I'd always heard otherwise. And then seeing what the kids in the hall did um, kind of validated my own thought that if you do something good and, and um, do something authentic, you can have it just air in Canada and have Canadian audience. And that's what happened with Corner Gas. And Corner Gas had a good run. Yeah, it was, I mean, uh, it was a good run. Yeah, I mean, I just decided we were still at the top of the ratings yeah. when I decided to uh, pull the plug. And it's just... I, I never wanted, Corner Gas was too important to me to let it die on the vine. I just right. couldn't stand to see it get old and wither and become less than what it could be. And I, I kind of made a promise to the show that I would never let that happen. And I, 
I've said this before. I felt like the show tapped me on the shoulder and said, you know, we could stick around longer if you want, but we should wrap this up. And, and plus as a creative person, you want to create, you don't want to keep going through the same motions. You want to create new things. That's what we do. That was Brent Butt talking about the kids in the hall and how they directly influenced the creation of Corner Gas. It's not a straight line, or comedically anyway, you wouldn't think it is. Jill Hennessy, probably best known or best loved by me anyway, for her work on Law & Order. I'm a big Law & Order fan, but that show's not Canadian, but she is. And she got her start in show business in Canada, standing on the street, playing music, uh, just outside of the House of Crows. So I had to ask her about that and how it led her down uh, the long and winding road to Law and & Order and The Good Wife and all the other great stuff that she's done since then. Here's Jill Hennessy. Some time ago, you might have been standing out front of this building playing guitar and singing for money on the street, right? It's rather uh, ironic that you're mentioning that because I was just looking out realizing, I think I played guitar on the street maybe two blocks from here. Yeah. And I even I think I shot a music video for somebody in a parking lot overnight, right, literally within my sight line yeah. behind you. Um, yeah, it was a long time ago, man. But uh, that was that's how I earned my, my living, how I what, paid rent. What was that like? To play on the street, because I've often heard from people that play on the street, like, it changes you a bit. No, I think you have to be out there. <laughs> I think you have to be out there for a while for it yeah. to actually have any real effect. But what was that like? Um, it was, as you can see, it's obviously changed me a great, great deal. Oh, oh gosh. Anyway, um, it was phenomenal. It yeah. was great because you, you're depending on yourself. Right. And, and you learn empathy with an audience because you're depending on reading them for where you're going next. You don't have a director, you don't have a writer. And I'm thinking, okay, so I'm looking at these people, I'm like, do they like you too? Do they like Joni Mitchell, Neil Young? What right. do they like? Um, and so I, I would just ask for requests and then sometimes they'd sing with me and then they'd teach me lyrics or right. they'd teach me songs. And uh, I, I love that, the electricity you have when you're actually working with your audience and you're feeling their joy, you know? I think it's fair to say that you're best known as an actor, but music clearly was the first love. When did that start for you? The acting thing? Or, no, the um, music thing. Oh, the like, music, uh, thing. music wow. I think, is, is that your first love, would you say? I would say it was the first thing I, I remember doing, to be yeah. honest, as a kid. I think most kids are very musical. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're also great actors, I have to say. But uh, I always remember singing with my twin sister, Jack, yeah. who's a great journalist here in yeah. Toronto. And uh, who actually sang with me today at Dundas Square. <laughs> um, so I love that, you know, <laughs> we're still singing. Right. We, we were singing when we were four years old. <laughs> I remember writing songs with my sister about brushing our teeth. <laughs> and in kindergarten, the teacher's saying, Jack and Jill, would you please sing that, that uh, toothbrushing song for the class? And then for French class, we had to translate it later when right. we were in, in, you know, first grade, grade one. Uh, you know, something about brasser les dents <laughs> and uh, brasse, 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 brasse les dents and it was to a real sort of 50s right. kind of melody and, and I look back now I'm like that was actually a pretty good song. <laughs> Man, I, I should go back to that kind of material. I, I, I know your sister, and yeah. I have cannot believe that up until this moment, I've never thought of you guys as Jack and Jill. 
I thank you. I have Good. never noticed wow. that ever. Yeah, that that has trailed us our whole lives. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. also affected me deeply. Has it? See. Yes, another oh, thing. Yeah. As as does playing on the street. Jack and Jill, man. <laughs> yeah, they, my parents swear that they weren't thinking about the nursery rhyme. Right. But, uh, I'm a little suspicious. <laughs> I would yeah. be too. Yeah. So. As you're playing on the street, uh, are you acting simultaneously, or how, what is there a timeline that you can kind of clearly delineate, or does it just feel like it all kind of happened at the same time for you? It all kind of blended because I was singing and playing to earn money, actually, to go to acting classes right. because I never went to a particular university mm -hmm. or college. Uh, so I was going to various schools here in New York. I went to secondary in New York, Toronto. Yeah. I went you to live in New York. I you're live in New York in, you're now. You're in Toronto now. I'm yeah. in Toronto. Thank you. It's been a whirlwind. <laughs> uh, and, uh, so I went to Second City here in Toronto and, and various uh, acting workshops here mm -hmm. that were tremendous. But, you know, I, I was also singing simultaneously to, to pay for those classes. Yeah. Uh, and I ended up getting a job uh, in a Broadway show because I was accompanying a friend of mine on guitar. He knew I was playing guitar in the street. Right. And he was auditioning for the Buddy Holly story. And he knew I loved Buddy Holly. So I, I played for him, and I ended up getting a job on the show. <laughs> uh, my friend Ken Merton, who's a tremendous actor, who uh, is he's phenomenal. And, of course, I got the part, which is so messed up. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. And you got a taste of what it was like in front of a lot of people. That was a hit show. That was yeah. a big show. That was a, It was a very big show. Did that change uh, things for you? Um, it definitely did. And it, yeah. it obviously got me down into the States, mm -hmm. you know. It was like the first job I had in, in the United States. And... Also to be on a Broadway stage, working with a half Canadian, half American cast, yeah. and uh, and then starting to audition in New York City was was uh, very interesting. Totally different kind of vibe or energy. Well, it, it is. I mean, mm -hmm. Broadway. There, there's a difference between Broadway and any other theater in the world. <laughs> I think, for one thing, there, there, it just feels different to me, mm -hmm. and it, it feels like there is a, a life that only Broadway actors kind of understand. Did you feel any of that? You um, live at a night little a little bit. bit. Yeah, You've... it's uh, it, again, it's such a crossroads of the world too. Mm -hmm. But I, there, there were so many aspects of, of Toronto theater that I missed. Right. And and there was such great, you know, innovative, explorative work happening and still happening here in Toronto, and and some really courageous choices that are always being made in, in terms of Canadian, you know, theater film, uh, that I. Yeah, you know, I really kind of miss that a little bit. You know, yeah. when you go to Broadway, it's it's much more controlled by the producers and and, and you know ticket sales and such. Smile, people, smile, smile. <laughs> smiles, everyone, smiles. <laughs> I'm trying to do my fantasy. I'm sorry. Uh, it worked. It worked. <laughs> well, that's it. That's all. That's all for the Canada Week celebrations over here at the House of Krauss. Of course, we're going to continue to celebrate and, and feel the joy that comes with being a Canadian for the rest of the week and the rest of the year. But we'll do it in our own restrained and, and quiet way because we are Canadians and that's the way we do things. Thanks for coming by. We put a new show up every single Monday. We love it when you stop by. You never know who's going to come by for a visit this week. Jay Baruchel gets my thanks. Deepa Mehta, Jill Hennessy, Patrick McKenna, Brent Butt, uh, Richard Cumley, Captain Canuck, everybody that came by to help us celebrate this great country. Be sure to drop by again next Monday. In the meantime, please stand at attention for our national anthem.